on this episode of Suspect Zero, the cases of the angels of death. Due to some graphic content, listener discretion is advised. Sometimes evil lurks in the most unexpected places. In a setting where you or your family members should be given the utmost care and special attention, no one should ever be questioning an untimely and suspicious death. No one could predict the horror that was about to unfold as a result of predators lurking among them. In today's episode, we will be discussing the angels of death, or as in some cases, the angels of mercy, who are typically employed as caregivers, and instead of carrying out the duty of making sure their patients are under the best care, they intentionally harm or kill them instead. The angels of death that we will be covering today include Donald Harvey, who believed he was acting as an angel when he killed terminally ill patients in the 1980s. Elizabeth Wetlawfer, a convicted Canadian female serial killer and former registered nurse who confessed to murdering eight senior citizens and attempting to murder six others in Ontario between 2007 and 2016. And finally, Daniela Poggiali, who killed her victims with hefty doses of potassium chloride and then snapped photos with some of the bodies. It's unfathomable that when we place our loved ones in the care of people we call caregivers, they turn out to be nothing more than dangerous predators with deviant intentions. Welcome to Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cold cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown. I'm Dawn Washburn and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Arntfield. Hello, Michael. Hey, Don. In terms of obscure cases, as some of our listeners like to refer to them, I thought this would be a good opportunity to delve into a series of cases. And in fact, believe it or not, there's about 42 in the US and Canada alone confirmed healthcare serial killers. So the term angel of death is often used as a placeholder for these types of killers. And we've got three of the more notable ones that we're going to look at today. They're all sort of suspect zeros because you don't hear about the, these cases, they don't garner the same media attention because the, the victims are, are often in palliative care or they're, they're vulnerable seniors or, or, or people with pre-existing medical conditions. And they just don't garner the same, the same type of publicity. And in fact, when you look at the list, uh, the rogues gallery of healthcare serial killers, and you look at the sentences, in many cases, these are very difficult to prove and a loss of their nursing license or being fired is often all that happens. Very few of them end up with lengthy prison terms the way uh, Donald Harvey and Elizabeth Wetlawfer have. So I had a question for you, but I wanted to maybe break down a little bit of what I learned online because I read an article by The Insider and they broke down the variations of what these motives kind of fall under. So I figured I would kind of paraphrase them real quick and then maybe let you let me know which one they fall under because I had a question about Harvey. Um, So the first one was the angel of mercy killer that we said, and their, their acts are perceived as they're merciful to the victim. Um, kind of like the elderly are chronically ill. They feel like they're, they're sparing them from this long drawn out death. And then there's some angels of mercy who may be acting out of trauma from their childhood, like a parent who lingered months before they died and they didn't want these patients, families to go through the same despair that they had. Then there's what they call the malignant hero um, who intentionally bring their victims to the brink of death in order to rescue them at the last moment, this making them clearly the hero. And then finally, just simple sadism where they just take pleasure in doing it. 
So I didn't, I was thinking, do you think that Harvey had a desire to kill? I, I feel like I know the answer to this, but did he have a desire to kill much earlier than when he started actually killing in the medical facility? Or was there something that triggered him once he was in and saw how easy it was? That's a good question. We'll probably never know. And while serving his 30th year of multiple life sentences, he was beaten to death in his cell. And, you know, nobody, nobody ever got those answers from him or really took an interest in him to, to interview him about these things. But he dropped out of high school and began working as an orderly at 18. So he was immediately drawn to healthcare settings. And we've talked about the the nexus between certain occupations and, and serial homicide in this show before, and overrepresentation of serial killers in certain, uh, in many cases, seemingly random occupations. But I mean, there seems to be little question, and Wetlaufer included, who who was already experimenting with trying to poison people before she got into long term care or hospice care. Uh, there's little question that Harvey, as a sadist was drawn to environments where he had essentially a stock pond of vulnerable victims. I agree. With and the reason I agree is because when I was reading about how he grew up, that he was molested and he was shunned at school and he was gay when it was unacceptable, unacceptable to be so, he was like going through his life almost powerless. And I feel like he decided to change that at some point, but this gave him so much power that it, it, it superseded what he really needed, I think. And the way that he chose his victims, Michael, I don't know if you know, read this part, but he would put a skull next to a candle and then talk to the candle to see who was going to die. And that's what gave him kind of that godlike, powerful feeling. But it was really very, very odd thing to read that that's how he was choosing to, to kill them. Yeah, there was a ritualistic element to his crimes. And this is why, I mean, the, the three that we've chosen to focus on today are really, I think, representative of the fact that the term angel of death or angel of mercy is a bit of a misnomer. There is a code blue syndrome, which you already mentioned, which is a, a very small fraction of this already relatively rare version of, of serial killer, healthcare killers. There is a small fraction who, as you said, want to engineer medical crises that they they can solve. Uh, so a code blue would be a, a code called in a hospital when a, a patient flatlines and it's basically all hands on deck. So they create these situations in order to bring, to revive the patient, bring them back in order to be the hero. And sometimes things go sideways and the patient dies. And then this is ultimately what basically allows that, that type of deviant to transition then even if unwittingly to being a, a murderer. Um, but the three we're looking at really, I think, typify the fact that the vast majority of healthcare killers are sadistic. They do not labor under some delusion of, of putting patients out of their misery or, or euthanizing patients who are you know, terminally ill and languishing in, in pain and misery. The three that we're looking at today basically killed either at random or murdered patients who just annoyed them. Uh, and I mean, Harvey in particular experimented basically on these, these patients. He injected some with HIV and hepatitis C to see what would happen. He put a rusty coat hanger into the catheter of one patient, mm. uh, I mean, which would be an excruciating death. So there's nothing merciful about that. And the others, he experimented with various uh, medications and poisons, as did Elizabeth Wetlaufer. I think the misconception is that a lot of people, when they were reading about his history, 
believe that it started, which I knew this wasn't true, but believe that it was triggered and started from when the one, one patient threw feces on him. But this was a known thing with this particular patient. He was, he was mentally ill. So they believe that that kind of triggered it. And then the other one, the other patient that you mentioned, that particular patient truly believed that Harvey was trying to kill him. And he kept telling everybody, he's tr- this guy's trying to kill me. And the more he said it and the more he would take care of the situation himself, Harvey then snuck in at nighttime after this man had taken care of business. And then he went in and, and that's the one with the coat hanger in the catheter. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, the other lesson to take away from, from these types of killers is, um, I mean, serial, the existence and ongoing ability of serial killers to function in a, in a city is... There is no greater indictment of, of, of your municipal or, or county leadership, your, your police leadership, your government leaders, uh, your social services. But when this occurs in, an, in a healthcare institution, these cases remind us of, of just sort of like the pandemic did, of just how um, expendable these, these patients are seen as are, are, how expendable they're seen by uh, senior administrators and quite frankly, by government officials. I mean, there was two nurses who were on to Harvey and suspicious of uh, the, the surge in deaths that is seen, that's seemingly natural or, or unexplained deaths that, that seem to occur on his watch. Uh, and they were basically told to, to shut up about it by the, uh, to look the other way by the, the nursing homes administration. And that, that allowed him, uh, much like Wetlawford, to go home to home and just resign or, or, um, or move on with few questions asked to the next home once people began to become suspicious of him. And there's no real way, uh, I mean, Wetlawford was a red registered nurse, but orderlies, personal support workers, I mean, these people are not registered with any regulatory or professional college. So there is no way to really sort of track where they've been. Previous discipline uh, is, is not available. Previous, um, uh, th- there's no way to police them. And, and that's in part because they're so desperately needed that governments have, and, and institutions have sort of taken a hands-off approach and trying to highly regulate them because uh, the turnover is is, is is bad enough as it is. So people like Harvey really thrive in, in this type of loosey-goosey environment where you've got few regulations or background checks and yet access to the most vulnerable people who, as his case and, and Wetlawfer uh, demonstrate, you know, are, are do not rank high in terms of public interest or even government interest in terms of when they turn when they turn up dead and in, in many cases because they're already they're, they're not expected to, to to leave those places that's their final address and in Wetlawfer's case were it not for admissions that she made to some counselor who then went to police we would have never known about the victims she was able to cover her tracks that well she was telling people you know and and in, in harvey's case he it, he's not he didn't just kill patients he killed he, he was trying to kill his neighbor and right. so there was other people but when he went wet lawfer's case she told friends of hers that she had this desire to kill and she also told them that she was getting fired from these jobs for making medication errors, while some of the some of these errors resulted in the death of patients. So people were, like you said, made aware of this. And she was actually she was a supervisor um, and decided to take the night shift where she had utter control of everything. And then something that you said triggered something else I felt was a lot of these serial killers kill 
and we've talked about this a lot, they kill prostitutes feeling that they're not worthy of being alive. So there's always like a justification for killing them. I feel like there's a sort of a justification theme in this as well, that if they're about to die or they, they need this much care, they don't deserve to be here either. Well, and that's where the the misconception that these are mercy killings and, and um, assisted deaths comes from mm-hmm. in that, well, these, these people are palliative or, or they're in hospice or they're not expected to, to leave and they've only got maybe months or, or at most a year life expectancy left. Um, so you know, the inference is that uh, this is being done out of mercy when in reality um, it's, it's a convenience it's just a matter of convenience and accessibility. And yeah, I mean, another reason I think this misconception continues to linger in the term angel of death remains a placeholder uh, for healthcare killers is uh, the number of female offenders. And this is really what sort of inspired this episode in that one of my students a couple of weeks ago asked me, we were talking about um, criminal investigative analysis and offender profiling, common characteristics among offenders who use certain body disposal methods. And uh, the common characteristics all again point largely to, to Caucasian males. And the question was, well, where's the, 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 the stats on, on female killers? And of course, we've talked about this in the show before. Many female serial killers are part of uh, male-led team killer groups. Uh, But there are uh, a number of of them hiding out in this sort of healthcare category, this angel of death category. And I think the misconception comes from the idea that for a female to murder, there has to be some mitigating or redeeming quality uh, for the the act. And uh, in reality, Healthcare killers are split sort of 50-50 male-female, and they exhibit the same sadistic tendencies. So um, I think the fact that there are so many females represented in this category versus other types of serial homicide is where this um, this urban legend uh, that they're all um, angels carrying out sort of some benevolent task and, and ushering the, you know, the soon-to-be-dead into some merciful um passing when in reality uh they're no different than you know like you mentioned the ones out trolling uh trolling known vice areas looking for prostitutes to murder yeah this just seems like a really easy easy place to be if that's what you're if that's what you're carrying out and it's just i think the question keeps coming up you know what what came first were you a sadistic killer prior to all of this or did something trigger it and i think that that's what comes up out of out of here but i totally agree i think it's it's a, a sadism that started way before and then they just found some sort of easy place to carry it out just like just like if you picked up a prostitute and knew that they were walking right into your into your web similar situation is what i see in in these particular murders well which is why again to go back to recurring occupations among serial killers and among psychopaths so i mean if you look at the top three occupations for psychopaths ceo or business executive doctor and lawyer i mean these are people who are drawn to positions of power and influence uh and grandiosity uh and i mean you don't go through the work of toiling your way through medical school and a residency and then decide you know that you're going to start hey this is a great way to to exploit people it's you are driven to do those and again this is a small minority of 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 people in these professions but uh, the psychopath is drawn to those occupations and will put the work in because of 
the opportunities that it offers. Not all psychopaths are, are murderers, not all murderers are psychopaths, but it, it's, it stands to reason that the same sort of life course is, is going to, and series of goals are going to present themselves to someone who knows early on by their formative years that they have these impulses, these proclivities, these paraphilias, uh, and they're going to seek out occupations that cater to them. There's some people who say that this was a cry for help. And we do know, I mean, many serial offenders who, who have been candid and cooperated with, with authorities and, and with clinical interviews, and Jeffrey Dahmer being a key one. And there's a, there's a film coming out on one of the streaming services, I think it's Hulu, that's going to actually be, I think, the first serious in-depth feature look at, at his life. But uh, interviews with, with Dahmer and others have indicated that, that much like addicts, quite frankly, many serial killers want to be able to stop and wish they knew how. And there's some thought that, that Wetloffer was looking for an intervention and looking for someone to, to stop her because she was otherwise lacked the resolve to, to stop on her own. And that, that, I think, is a viable theory, again, given what we know about uh, certain types of, of serial offenders. Right. And she also had borderline personality disorder, too. So she was a little bit, not that they don't all have something, but she definitely had that. And I'm sure that had a major play in this. Well, one of the defining features of borderline personality disorder is lionizing and idolizing somebody one minute and, and being very unstable and, and then vilifying them and despising them and wishing death upon them mm. uh, very soon thereafter. I mean, the, the first sort of classic depiction of of borderline personality disorder would be the film Fatal Attraction, which mm-hmm. uh, chronicles the the um, the wild ride of being in the mind of, of, of someone like that very clearly. Uh, and again, someone with borderline personality disorder in a, a, a position such as Wedloffer's, I mean, this is someone who could take great pity and, and, and on, on, on a patient one day and, and, and sort of care for them deeply. And the next day just decide that they're annoying and need to be need to be uh, expunged. And then that leads us, we haven't talked about uh, Peg Leolo. So this, here's, here's a, another twist where we've got sort of the, the characteristics of Harvey and Wetlaufer, uh, and then the grandiosity of a social media narcissist. I mean, not only, so Harvey's suspected of killing about 85 I mean, 54 to 58 victims are confirmed. It's thought to be closer to 85 to 90. Uh, Pegliolo, I mean, we're talking, what, over 100? And, and, and she's taking selfies with, uh, Bodies. with the victims. That's unbelievable to me. Just unbelievable. To me. I mean, you're creating, you're even creating a little trail of, for everyone to know exactly what you did. I mean, the, we know that the people have odd... I hate to call them fetishes, but that's where I kind of go a little bit. You know, after reading Dark Dreams too, that that book kind of solidified the fact that you have no idea what's really around you. So when you mentioned that in another podcast, and I listened to that when I well, I listened to it on on Audible, but um, when that played out, started telling me, oh my god, I didn't even realize half of these things existed. So if you didn't read that book, you need to really read that book. If you're you know if you're into the true crime genre and you really want to know why they do what they do and know why, what makes people tick. That's a really good book to read, but read with caution. An angel of mercy or angel of death is a type of criminal offender, often a type of serial killer, who is usually employed as a caregiver and intentionally harms or kills people under their care. The angel of mercy is often in a position of power and may decide the victim would be better off if they no longer suffered from whatever severe illness is plaguing them. 
This person then uses their knowledge to kill the victim. In some cases, as time goes on, this behavior escalates to encompass the healthy and the easily treated. Another thing, Don, that uh, merits mentioning is the term angel of death often gets conflated with, of course, doctor death. And I think this is also where the, the misconception that these people are doing some kind of medical service comes from. And doctor death was, of course, Jack Kevorkian, uh, a pioneer in dignified assisted deaths who was arrested and, and, and prosecuted for, in Michigan for, for, for trying to provide assisted deaths. That is very different. Again, a consenting patient. Uh, and so, you know, in Canada now, this is, this is law that you know, people are, are entitled to assisted deaths subject to certain conditions and review by sort of the physician who's either going to be performing it or the hospital who approves it. Kevorkian was was an early adopter of this idea and uh, was, again, criminalized for it, despite the fact that this is something the patients wanted, despite the fact that this was uh, a dis- an informed, cons- consensual decision supported by medicine uh, and the science. That is very different from someone uh, who, as a personal care worker or as a nurse, acts unilaterally and like God and just marks people for death, whether or not their their death is imminent or or not. So I think that's just an important distinction to draw. And uh, we're probably dating ourselves being throwing the name Kevorkian around. But I mean, that was a very prominent Detroit area lawyer. And and of course, living in southwestern Ontario at the time, we got all the Detroit stations. So that's a case that I grew up with, quite frankly. When does a doctor say that's not what you should be doing? Or should you? Well, and this was the debate at the time. And uh, I mean, essentially the the DA uh, probably caving to public pressure said, you know, this was not the time to to be having this discussion. And yet no, no single physician should be making that, that decision. And, and, and there's now checks and balances in, in place for in, in the jurisdictions that allow it. But then, you know, fast forward decade or so. And then you had the case of Terry Schiavo in, in, in Florida, which, which brought that debate back to the fore and, and saying, you know, what people uh, who are interminably suffering and who are still cognitive should be able to form their own opinion on, on how they want to end their life. And, and again, Kevorkian, who, who got the name Dr. Death pejoratively, agreed with that. And I, I think, again, Dr. Death, that's his media moniker and Angel of Death as, as sort of the, the recurring placeholder for any healthcare killer. This sort of muddies the waters in terms of differing motivations behind uh, what these people are doing. And there's, there's, there's absolutely no connection between assisted deaths or medically assisted dignified deaths and the murders committed by, by healthcare killers. No. And going back to the Terry Shavo case, I, that was a case I had done that case with my students in class a while ago. We were debating on whether or not the parents should have had the right or the husband should have had the right. And 95 percent of my students felt that the husband was trying to kill her off so he could move on because Terry wasn't able to say what she wanted to say. She was in no position to even give any response like that. The parents would have had to uphold her her decision in that in that respect. But that then it became, well, I married her. It's my my decision. So I think that was a case that was a little bit not in the in the patient's 
realm of decision. Well, and that's why it was national news. And so, I mean, there's the, the question of, of power of attorney, right? I mean, people get confused about what a power of attorney is. And basically, it boils down to money spending and plug pulling. <laughs> if someone Jeez. can't make up their own, uh, yeah. if someone can't make up their, it's not cognitive enough to form their own decisions or, or voice their opinion. Yeah. So we're getting a little bit off topic, but that's yeah, it's, it's, okay. it's just interesting how, I mean, those cases are household names and yet Donald Harvey's is, is not because again, for whatever reason, uh, healthcare killers uh, are sort of the bottom rung in terms of public interest in serial killers. And yet, uh, and I've, I've, I've talked about this before, the, the greatest hits, the A-sides that true crime loves to keep replaying on repeat the Ted Bundys and the Ramirez's and the Gacy's. And in reality, again, this is the whole purpose of this show is there are thousands of others that are more important from a homicide studies and criminology perspective and who are just, who have, who have never really seen any serious public discussion. I'm glad we're touching on every bit of what we can just to raise this awareness to everyone especially the cold cases and the serial killers as well. It's it's important to know how people tick and what they do. So I think that's a good place to maybe break today. See you guys next time on Suspect Zero. On the next episode of Suspect Zero, the unsolved cold case murder of Ayla Sarek Auger.